The beginning of Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good work which God prepared in advance for us to do. Right here at the beginning of Ephesians 2, Paul offers, writes some of the most profound and important words that have ever been written before. And uh, to summarize, I mean, Paul looks at this church in, in Ephesus and he says to them, Hey, you all were sinners. And you all could not reconcile yourself to God. You could not come into relationship with God. But God loved you. And so he came down to earth in the person of Jesus in order to save you. This is what we call grace. And so Paul looks at this group in Ephesus and says, This is the gospel, that you could not do anything to earn salvation, but rather that God did everything so that you could come into his kingdom and you could spend eternity in relationship with him. Paul assumes that these people in Ephesus, this church, has already come to that relationship with him. But I would just offer to some of you today that if you haven't, if you've never accepted that grace, then the Bible makes clear throughout that it's a choice that you have to make if you want to have that relationship with God and that eternal life. You see, it's easy to go, yeah, sure, that's a great gift and that's an awesome idea, but we must choose to take hold of that by believing that Jesus died, but also by giving him our lives and becoming his followers. Jesus says that we must take up our cross daily and follow him if we are going to receive eternal life. Now, Paul jumps from there and he goes right back into what he had been talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. He talked about the benefits of Christianity and he discusses them and he says, look, there's these great riches that you have and the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you have the promise of not just riches now, but riches for eternity. And right here, after he gives us the gospel, he jumps right back in to the benefits of being a Christian. Paul wants this church to apparently to really understand how great it is to be a Christian. And at the end of kind of this section in verse 18, he summarizes by saying this, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. See, Paul again is talking to these non-Jewish people and he's saying, Before this Jesus guy came and you became Christians, you could not have a relationship with God. You didn't have the law. You didn't have the rules and regulations that came along with the law. You didn't have the prophets. You didn't have an understanding of God. And most importantly, you didn't have the presence of God in your life. But now, through Jesus, you have access, just like the Jews, to the Father by one Spirit. It's a big deal. Because throughout the history of Israel, what had separated them and made them a nation was primarily two things. One, the law, and two, they had access to the Father in a different way than anybody else on earth. 
If you were to go back to Exodus 19, a story that you know, if you've been around our church, is important to me and my understanding of church. God comes to Moses and he says, hey, I want to make this a holy nation, my people, my treasured possession. And he says, I'm going to meet you on a mountain, make the people consecrate themselves. So Moses has the people clean themselves and get ready to meet with God. And God shows up on in, in fire on top of Mount Sinai and he speaks to them the words that we know as the Ten Commandments. And the people say, wow, this presence is too strong. Moses, you go up there and you talk to them the rest of the time. We can't take it anymore. So Moses goes up there and he meets with God and he comes back down and finds the people worshiping a golden calf. Maybe you've heard that story. And he breaks the Ten Commandments and he goes back up and he gets another set of Ten Commandments. And in the midst of all this, God looks at him and says, hey, it's time for you guys to move on from this mountain, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, time out. If we're going to go, then you must come with us. In fact, if you're not going to go, then we don't want you to go with us. And then you read, Moses says this, How else will the other nations on earth know that we are your people if you do not go with us? And so for thousands of years, the Jewish people had a special privilege to be in the presence of God in a unique way. And when you come to the time of the New Testament... That separation had actually been made more clear because the temple had become the place for God's manifestation of his presence. And in the temple, there was one room, the very inside of it, called, we refer to it as the Holy of Holies. One man, every year, the high priest, was able to go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was most strong. But between the beginning of the temple and the time of Jesus... They had put some other rules and regulations, not God's rules and regulations, but man-made rules and regulations on the temple. And so what you found at the time of Jesus and the time of this writing is that there was the Holy of Holies, and then there was an, another section of temple as you go out from the Holy of Holies that was reserved just for Jewish men. And then if you went out a little more, you would find a section reser- reserved for Jewish women. And then if you went out another section, you found the place where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were able to come and experience the presence of God. They were pretty far away from the presence of God. And so Paul's words here are very important. And we might look back as people who lived 2,000 years later. We never saw the temple. We don't have an understanding of what it meant to not have access to God. But Paul's words in verse 18 are very important. For through Him we both have access to the Father by the same Spirit. All people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, have access to God because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 19, he says, consequently, which connects to what he's just said, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Non-Jewish people are now united to Jewish people to create one new nation, one new citizenship, if you will. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says it this way, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, one of the things about the church universally is that we constitute this new nation. 
this people of God. If we give our lives to Jesus, it doesn't matter who we are, where we've been, our nationality, our background, our age, our gender, we all become part of this one holy nation according to both Paul and Peter in the New Testament. Peter's next verse in 1 Peter, it, it describes a little further because this is what he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now isn't that a really weird thing to say? You, you say, hey, you used to not be a nation. You used to not be a people. Now you are. And then in the next line, to say, I urge you as aliens and foreigners. What, I mean, if you didn't read anything past that, wouldn't you kind of just go, wait a minute. I thought I used to be an alien. Now I'm not an alien. I'm not, a, I'm not an exile anymore, but I have a nation. Here's what Peter is referring to. If you read the book of First Peter, he's saying this, that when you come into this thing called Christianity, you are no longer citizens of this world but you are citizens of god's kingdom in heaven and now if you are a christian person you are a foreigner living hopefully missionally on this planet you see we have it backwards in christianity we think this is our home and someday heaven will be our home but the bible tells us peter paul all of the new testament shows us that we when we come to jesus when we become part of this thing called the church we become citizens of a place called heaven and we are here as people that are to spread the kingdom of our king who happens to be the creator of the universe you see, we could do a whole sermon on church as a nation. It's not as pertinent to what Paul says here, and so we're not using that metaphor today. But this is an important idea, because when you start to see yourself as a foreigner on this planet, who is only here, who is only here to spread the kingdom of our King, to do His work, to do the role that He has for you, then you start to live a much better, much more godly, much more holy life. You must be a person who recognizes that the only reason you're on this earth is to do the work of your nation, which is in heaven, that you will be in someday forever. That's what Christians need to remember. But that is not Paul's first and foremost, most prominent idea in this passage. Instead, Paul wants to get to something else. And so listen to what he says next. He says, Also, you are also members of His, that's God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. There is one giant main point here but we must also look at the details because they're pretty cool and pretty important for our lives too first of all he says that we are now members of god's household household refers to those within a house and so oftentimes in the new testament well only a couple times in the new testament oftentimes in greek literature it refers to those who are part of a family right like we would say that you are in my Household, And two times in the New Testament it's used that way. But here, Paul seems to have something else in mind. He seems to be saying that we are part of the house itself. Listen to the words of 1 Peter, again, 2.5. It says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul is using this word household in Ephesians 2 to basically say that you are part of God's house on this earth. In other words, if you use 1 Peter's 
language. We are, if we are Christians, we are bricks in the house of God on this earth. Now you say, well, what does that mean? I mean, that's weird. I'm not a house. I don't know what you're talking about. We'll get there in a second, but we must build this foundation further by focusing on the foundation. He says next, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Paul uses this very metaphorical language, and it's all construction language, right? First he says that we're built. It's the idea of building something, just like you would in the world today, just like a house goes up. This is the type of word that Paul is using. And he says that we are being built on a foundation, and that foundation is the prophets and the apostles. Now, the apostles, that's clear who that is. That is primarily Jesus 11 disciples plus the one that was added on later, Judas, one of his disciples, betrayed him. He is in, uh, in mind here. And so it's Jesus' 11 disciples and another disciple that was added later. And it's the Apostle Paul who met with Jesus on the road. These guys were Jesus' best friends, his followers, his closest, closest confidants while he was on this earth. And he left them the job of building the church. And so the church lays on top of them in two ways. First of all, it lays on top of them because they were really the first Christians. They were the first followers of Jesus. And usually foundation is at the bottom. But second of all, these men are responsible for the early spread of the gospel. They are the ones that told other people about Jesus' death and resurrection, about how awesome he was and how people needed to give their lives to him. And the truth is, if you sit here today as a Christian, it is because of these apostles and their witness. Many of them, almost every one of them, history tells us, died in order to continue the spread of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he came to earth to save you from your sins. There's a story in the book of Acts that just comes to mind right now, and they're beaten for preaching. Or first they're arrested, I'm sorry, for preaching the gospel. And the people say, hey, we're going we're gonna to whip you, we're going to beat you if you keep doing this. And they say, hey, sorry, we have a job to do, and we're going to obey God and not you. And then they keep preaching, and then they get arrested, and then they're beaten, and then they come out celebrating because they were able to do something so great for Jesus. So great as to be persecuted for Him. It's crazy to think about it, but this is the foundation that if you call yourself a Christian, you were built on these men who said, I love Jesus so much that I'm going to tell everybody about it. But they aren't the main part of the foundation. The main part of the foundation is Jesus. It says here that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. It's not a term that we use very often, but uh, from my reading, what I understand, it is the, it is the corner piece of the beginning of a foundation that sets the angles and the size of everything else. And if it is messed up, if it is wrong, right, then you build the leaning tower of pizza. So that's what happens if the chief cornerstone is wrong. Uh, and Jesus is that for us. He is the one who came to the earth and, and he became the very central piece of this thing called church. It makes sense, right? I mean, we talk about him, we sing to him, we think about him. But it is important to remember that he is the defining piece in what we call the church today and what is the household of God on earth. And here's why I believe that to be true. It's because Jesus was, in fact, God in human form. And so when we talk about God having a house on earth, it only makes sense that when He came and took on flesh, it even says that He took on in a way that it, the body became His house, His tent, while He was on this earth. And, and when He came, He was God on earth, then He set the standard for what it means to be 
the house of God on this earth. Does that make sense? And so Jesus comes, He is God on earth, and now we, being built upon that, are to be God's residents on this planet. He is the one that we must model church after, our lives after, everything we do after. Now it moves on here, and here's what Paul says, In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There's two really important things here. First of all, Paul is saying that what needs to happen in order for the church of God to be the building of God, His temple, His place on this planet, then we must come together and we must be built up. Those are the two things he's saying. Now, Here's what you need to understand about this. First of all, the whole building is the temple. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is that the universal church, the church, is God's place of residence on earth. And I've already talked about it a little bit, uh, but it's, it's important to repeat here. The temple was the structure for God's existence on this planet. I mean, if people wanted to have a moment with God, then they went to the temple and they gathered there and they sought Him out. It's where they brought their sacrifices when they wanted to worship Him. It's where they went when they needed forgiveness. They traveled from all over to the place called the temple. Now, what's interesting here is that some commentaries say that the word for temple used here is actually a reference to the Holy of Holies, the very center of God's presence. And so it's quite clear that Paul is saying, Church is... God's temple, God's residence, God's place on the planet of earth. Now, it says here that God is building it up and bringing it together. Now, here's uh, just building up is clear, right? God wants to continue to move it up. He wants to continue to make his residence better and bigger and greater on this earth. And that happens as people come into the faith. People become Christians. That is how it is brought up and as we grow in our relationship with God. And this is how I think we can see it. This is an old church building that we are in right now. I don't know if you know this story, but this building was condemned for a really long time. And it was kind of a controversial subject in the city of Wilsonville because nobody could do anything in it because you'd get asbestos and die and things like that. Hold your breath. And... Nobody wanted to tear it down because it's one of the oldest church buildings in, in the state of Oregon. It's like this historical site in the city of Wilsonville. It's one of the oldest buildings here, 102, I think, this year. And so it, it was like this source of controversy. And so it sat here for a really long time. And what happened is kids, as they'll do, they picked up rocks and they threw them through the windows. And here... Today, you can look behind you and see some of the stained glass. What happened is that when they restored the building and made it into the shape it is in today, they actually created the stained glass to be a reminder of the cracks that were in the windows. And so every place you see the clear glass, it's where a rock went through, and all the lines coming out from it were actually cracks that were in the old stained glass. And I think that this is a picture of what Jesus does in us. He takes those of us who are broken and hurt and struggling, but choose to give our lives to Him, and He puts us together with a bunch of other people that are the same, and He builds us into something that's beautiful like stained glass, that is, according to this, His place on the planet of earth. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is that we, 
if we are part of the church, if we give our lives to Jesus, are being brought together and built up and transformed and renewed and made new and, and fixed and all of these things in order that God can have his residence on this earth. Now, one more thing before I explain this further. I want to look at the temple in 2 Samuel 7. This is what we read. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Go and tell my servant David, this is God responding, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day... I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In First Chronicles 28, we see the rest of the story. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and you have shed blood. And God says, David, you make the plans. Your son Solomon will build it. And out of that, we see that God puts together these very important, very strict plans and says, this is what I want for my place on earth. God takes his residence very seriously. And this next part, this last verse in our section today, is very important. He says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in spirit. He looks at this church in Ephesus it says, you all are being built into a residence for God. He looks at a local church and says, you are to be a place for God to live on this planet, to manifest his presence in unique ways. Now, it doesn't come out in English, but it comes out in the Greek. And, and interestingly, when you read the Bible, in most modern translations, when you see the word you, it can be either plural or singular. And because we, in our modern English, just say you, like I could say you, and I could mean all of you right now, or I could mean you, one of you, uh, we translate to reflect that, and sometimes very important nuances are missed in Greek. Thankfully, I follow a guy on Twitter who's the head of kind of technological communication at Dallas Theological Seminary who recently, uh, just seriously like last week, put a web app online that translates all the plural yous in the Bible into the Texas version of a plural you, which is y'all. And so let me read this to you uh, in the Texas version of y'all. So then y'all are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but y'all are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of God's household because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, I've never been to Texas. The only thing good in Texas is the Dallas Cowboys. So he actually, thankfully, made a version for the Pacific Northwest. And maybe this will sound familiar, more familiar to you. So then you guys are no longer foreigners and citizens, but you guys are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you guys also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Do you see the nuances here? 
This isn't about just you getting added in. It says in the middle, yes, you are built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. But the group, together, collectively, are being joined together in order that we can be God's presence on the planet of earth. Sure, the Bible says, makes clear, that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes upon us says that in 1 Corinthians 6. You can read it. It says that you are the temple of God and it's a singular you. No you guys, no y'all. It's just a singular you. In, in Acts chapter 10, when the first non-Jewish people become Christians, you see that Peter looks at them and as soon as the Holy Spirit comes on them, he says, let's baptize you. What's to prevent us from doing it? And he says that because he sees the Holy Spirit come upon them as individuals. But here... In our passage, he isn't saying like, you are the temple of God. You are being built into a household of God. He says, you all together are becoming God's residents on the planet of earth. This has some very profound implications for you and I. As you know, I believe, if you've been around, you know this, that God manifests His presence most fully when we come together in the assembly. That is based on an understanding of Exodus 19 that I've talked about and written about enough at this point that I'm not going to explain it here, but go look at it. But I want to talk more importantly about the implications of us being God's presence on the earth together as a church. It means... That we must allow our lives and, and our group, our church, to reflect His presence always. It means that when we come together on Sunday morning, we cannot act like God is not here, sitting, going through the motions. Because when somebody walks in that says, man, I don't know what's going on in my life, but if I could just be around God, the only place He's going to find it is in the midst of the church. I mean, if person needs God, then they need to be in church, and we must reflect that. We cannot, as Christians, any longer come to church, say, what is it in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? Let's go through the motions. Let's get it done. I'm not sure I want to get out of bed. All of that stuff. We must come here saying, we, together, are being built together, most specifically when we assemble to be God's presence, and I'm going to reflect that in the way that I interact with Jesus today. I'm not just going to go, oh, I'm going through the songs, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm going to passionately worship God because the Bible is making abundantly clear that God is with us. It means that when we scatter, we must not forget about God. Because we continue, if you pay attention, to be God's presence on earth. Collectively, When we go into our communities and we go into our jobs and we go into Starbucks and we go around the world needs us to reflect the presence of God that is inside of us, but most importantly, collectively at work. You see, when we scatter, we're still a church, and so therefore God is still moving through us. We reflect, in other words, the presence of God, and people will look at us and they will say, what is it that God looks like? What is it that God does on this planet? And, and I'll tell you what He does. He does what you do in the eyes of the people who are watching. We can no longer be people who simply say, I go to church. We must be people who say, I am the church. And that means that I am the house of God collectively with those I gather with. Representing God to this hurt and broken nation. And here's the other thing that is so important. 
When you look at the Old Testament and you, and you examine what God thought about His temple, He went down the list. I want this long and this wide and I want this many of that and I want that to sit there and I want that plant in that spot and I want that piece of art on that wall and I want it just like this. But sometimes, when it comes to the topic of our lives and of church, we go, what does it matter if I just do one thing kind of wrong? That would have got you killed when it came to the Old Testament temple. I mean, God just would have zapped you. Like, hey, you touched it? Well, duh. Done. And it's too bad he doesn't do that today, because we'd really clean things up around here. But seriously, if we really are the house of God, the temple of God, where his presence resides, then we must take a look at our lives and say, God, is it exactly reflecting what you have asked me to be like in your word? Am I actually doing what you want me to do? Because I know it's serious business. It doesn't just affect me. It affects you and your presence to this planet. and affects everybody around me. And as a church, and I harp on this one a lot, we must be a church who doesn't say, what is everybody else doing? What's the cool thing in church? What's going to make us grow? We must say, God, what do you want your temple to look like what do you want your house on this earth to look like because that's what we are going to be about doesn't matter what's going to make us grow doesn't matter what is happening down the road it doesn't matter what's happening in that famous church we just want to be about what you want us to be about because we know you were serious about your temple and now you're saying that we all collectively together are being built into your residence on this earth you see we must look at church's temple The metaphors of church are important, as we talked about last week and the week before, because they help us to know what we must do and what we must be like. And it's too bad that what we see church as is just church sometimes. We've lost all of the meaning behind it and all of the the profoundness that goes into it and, and what it is at its deepest core level. We've lost everything that allows us to really, going back to Ephesians 5, to, to declare to Satan and the dark forces that God always makes good decisions because we've forgotten that we are the bride of Christ. There must be in a loving, awesome relationship with Him and must be submissive to Him and also remember how much love He has for us. And... We've forgotten that we are, we are the place, the group for God's presence on the earth. I mean, think about it. We must try our best to be what he wants us to be if he is really going to dwell in our midst. I even think about this. This is just right on the spot again. But I think about the way we talk about other churches sometimes. I mean, we just kind of flippantly like, oh, they're, you know, they're kind of weird or, you know, they're too big for me or whatever. But that's God's dwelling too on this earth. And we should love them and support them and care about them. We should want every church, not just our own, to be doing the things that God wants us to do because we know He resides there. And when the world is looking for God, I'm telling you, I mean, and you know this, if God would just show up, right? People say that if if he would just show me something, then I would believe in him. If God would just be here, then I wouldn't think he was so bad. I don't know, I'm agnostic, but maybe if God, you know, if I could see him, then I would believe something. You hear those types of things, right? And I think we hear those so consistently in our country right now. Because we've diminished the fact that people need to see God in us. They need to see God when we scatter. 
and they need to see God when we are together. And if that will happen, then our world, our answer should be this. You need to see God come to church Sunday. And really, we've left that to those other people who are more charismatic than us. Like, well, you might see God there, you know, we put it in the quotes and uh, some crazy stuff happens down the road. But that's uh, whether that's really God or not, that's not the point. The point is that in every church that is real and believes in Jesus and, and has full of Christians, then when we gather, we should remember that God is with us and our lives and the response that we have should reflect that. And then when we go out into the world, we should be saying, man, how can I be a picture of God today? How can I show this world that God is in me and that God is in my church and that God exists on this planet and that God deserves every ounce of their being and that He really did come to die and, and, and He wants to save them and let them live in eternity in heaven. That needs to be our attitude towards church. We must leave behind churches. It's church. And we must move into the realm of understanding and remembering these wonderful, rich, deep metaphors. You, together, us, you guys, y'all are the presence of God on this earth. Will you pray with me? Lord, we want to see you more in our congregation. And Lord, we're trying to be more obedient to you. And Lord, you know in the, in the two years now that I've been at Creekside, all I've really tried to do, Lord, is, is make us a church that's more obedient to you so that you will be with us in more real and powerful ways. And God, we pray that that would continue. And if there is anything, anything at all in our church that makes you hesitant to let your presence be here, then I pray, God, that you remove it from our midst. Lord, I ask that, Lord, we would take sin seriously in our own personal lives, knowing that it affects the church as a whole, and we would do our best to remove sin, God. And I pray, Lord, that, that we as a church would, would be obedient to everything that you have commanded, God, not just the easy stuff. Lord, it's easy to show up on Sunday mornings. We like it for the most part, God. We enjoy being here. But Lord, some of the other stuff that you command is much harder. God, church discipline is much harder. Commanding rich people to give of their money, Lord, is much harder. Making sure that we have qualified leaders and not just people who are good at something is much harder, God. And we pray that in all of it, Lord, we would, we would just be the building that you want us to be, God. Lord, I thank you that you take us broken, shattered, pieces of glass, Lord, that just are so fragile, Lord, and, and Lord, if we give our lives to you, you bring us into something that is so much bigger and better than us, and you make us this, this beautiful thing, and I pray, Lord, that, that we would not diminish that, but we would reflect that always. God, I pray for the people in our church, Lord, and I ask that when they go from here on Sunday mornings, that, that Lord, you would be proud of the way that they interact with the world. Lord, you've been bringing new people into our midst, God, and, and I pray that uh, even now, Lord, they would just be humbled, but also excited by the fact that they represent this church and they represent you, God, when they, when they go into the world. I pray, Lord, that, that this church would be a church that is obedient to you and, and that you're just comfortable being in. And I pray, God, that... We would always do things right, Lord. Let us, let us remember that, 
church is not just a building, it's not just a group of people, but it literally is your house on this earth. It's the dwelling place of your presence. And let our lives reflect that, God. Um, Jesus, I, I pray that you would be with us now, God. I pray that you would that you would touch down and, and I can talk about these things till I'm blue in the face, Lord. And you know, it's an important subject to me and it drives everything that I do here at our church as the pastor. But Lord, um, I pray you just show us you. We want that so bad, God. Uh, I want that so bad, Lord. I know that I need your presence, Lord. And so I ask that in just amazing ways right now as we finish up this service, you would show us yourself. I pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.